Cheers, Paul. If you want to turn to Romans chapter 1. We are starting a new series today. Yay, we've got a yay over there. What have we got over here? A woo. Romans chapter 1. We are going to start making our way through the book of Romans over the next few months and maybe longer. It depends how long it's going to take us. We haven't planned how long it's going to take us. We're just going to see what happens. Go through it by piecemeal. There's a reason why we've called the uh, series A King's Revolution. I think sometimes Romans can get a bit, what's the word, a bit misjudged. Some people can look at it and think, that's a bit meaty, not for me. (laughs) Or there's a few verses I like, but I don't really get the rest of it. Am I coming through loud and clear? No, not really. I'm definitely on. I'm not muted on the... um, It's on here. Is it muted? Am I coming through? Am I coming through? The BA team are out doing youth. Left us to it. It's coming through. Thank you very much. Lovely. Oh, I can hear it now. There it is. The book of Romans can seem a bit daunting sometimes. It's a bit meaty and we think it's just for the theologians, but there's a few verses we memorised from it. Is that the normal bit of the normal vibe? Who's ever studied the whole book of Romans? Two or, two or three, a few, not many. The thing is, Romans is astounding and it is a treasure trove and it looks a bit daunting, but it's always worth digging and always worth going investigating. We're going to spend some time looking through this. It's been highly... This, particular letter has been highly instrumental in church history. When you look at the big reviving landmarks, the major landmarks of church history where the church has been strengthened and revived and kind of recalibrated back on track and, and more powerful and growing as a result, it's, the book of Romans is quite often at the epicenter of that. This book, this letter that Paul writes to these people in the Roman capital, uh, it's been described as uh, Paul's magnum opus. Daunting words. It's been described as the cathedral of the Christian faith. It's been described as the most profound book in existence. Quite a statement. And Martin Luther, he was quite a seminal figure. I'm sure you've heard of him. Quite a seminal figure in in the uh, Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. He describes the letters to the Romans as the chief part of the New Testament. The more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. So we are going to spend a long time savouring its riches. You up for a bit of that? Yeah. Just to explain a little bit about the background to the letter, it's written by Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he's in Corinth. He's on his third missionary journey. You remember we went through the book of Acts just recently, looking at his second and third missionary journeys. During that third missionary journey, while he was in Corinth, he wrote this letter to these people in Rome, people he hasn't even met yet. And he's got such a heart for them, and he's got such a hunger to go and meet them, to be with them. In fact, that's his end goal. I want to get to Rome. And the thing is, we need to understand the context in which this is written. The Roman Empire at the time is ruled by the Emperor Nero. This is about 57 AD when he writes this. Emperor Nero. Who's heard of Emperor Nero? Off his nut, wasn't he? In a scary way. He was terrifying. Evil despot. He was murderous. This guy built his reign on his rival's corpses. Horrible, horrible man. And he was determined by whichever means to demonstrate that he was the king. That's That's what he was all about. Paul writes this letter and right from the very offset, he declares, forget Nero and any others, Jesus is king. Right from the very beginning, as we're going to find out in the first few verses, Paul immediately establishes Jesus as the one and only king with a capital K. And 
to be honest, in this context of what was going on in the Roman Empire and who Nero was, this is just like throwing a, um, a lit match on a lake of petrol. This is quite an incendiary kind of message he's, he's sending out. He doesn't mince his words, and from there he continues to demonstrate throughout this letter that there's actually a revolution underway. And there's something we can often miss in the Christian faith, particularly in the Western world, it can become quite individualistic, me and Jesus. And Paul's like, there is something massive going on here, and we're a part of this. This is what we get swept up into. He says, Jesus as king is not about some individualistic take-it-or-leave-it take it belief, you know, one option amongst others. It's not about that. It's not even if Jesus would have died for me if I was the only sinner in the world. Please, please don't say that if you say that, because it actually diminishes what happened on the cross. Jesus didn't, he did die for us, but that's the point, he died for us. He died for a people. He died for a family. He died for God's bride. Do you understand? He, he died for a collective group of people that have been swept up and adopted as his family. It's not about you and Jesus. It's about us and our king. Same but very, very different. And the more we keep that global picture of what we're caught up in, our own walk within that changes dramatically. Does that make sense? Is that helpful? This is a message that impacts the world and there's a revolution under, underway. So Paul, can we just have the next slide up just to help give you a quick overview of the letter before we launch into it. These are the chapters in red. These are the chapters on the left. This is the overarching kind of um, message of the letter. Right at the beginning, Paul starts from the offset just describing the first two chapters. And the first chapter alone is quite blunt, <laughs> as you'll find out in the next few weeks. He's explaining that humanity's sin is a universal problem. All of us are responsible. All of us have victims. That's a horrible thought. All of us have victims. The things we've thought, the things we've said, the things we've done. Varying degrees, but we all have victims. We're all responsible. There is something at work in our hearts from the moment we're born that needs dealing with. It's called sin. So Paul points this out, that what's going on in the world around us, what the main problem is in the world around us is in us. Then he explains the next few chapters, chapters 3 to 7, he explains God's perfect plan to save us remember plural, to save us through Jesus. He explains it, he dissects it, almost in this kind of case for the prosecution. He just presents all this evidence and just dissects what's going on, what Jesus has done. And then it culminates in chapter 8, is like this peak of Mount Everest in the middle of Romans, even in the middle of the New Testament, really. There's this peak of Romans chapter 8, which is this glorious, amazing chapter about the Holy Spirit giving us new life, adopted into God's family. It's just breathtaking news that it leads up to. From there, chapters 9 to 11, Paul just paints a bit more of the global picture about Jews and non-Jews alike. That's pretty much probably all of us in this room, non-Jews. We are Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles together becoming one new man. It's a term used elsewhere in the New Testament. One new man in Christ. We are, God didn't just, it wasn't all just about the Jews. The Jewish people being set apart for God was a signpost to something bigger to come. They were just the first fruits. They're just the, they're just the beginnings of something far greater. And that's us, the church. It's about Jews and non-Jews alike getting swept up across the globe. Anyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ as their saviour. And then the final few chapters from chapter 12 onwards, Paul is just explaining, in the light of all you've heard, this is what it looks like to live a life for God through Jesus, this revolutionary truth. And as we do that, as we walk in the light of that, this revolution is underway that started at the cross. It was already planned beforehand, arranged beforehand, and from that moment, something happened. More than just Jesus dying for my sin. He did, but it's so much grander, so much more epic than that, and we're a part of it. And that's what Romans is all about. So let's read just the first seven verses of Romans chapter 
one. If you can't find it, it's easy to find if you're not used to your Bible. In the New Testament, you've got the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. You've got the book of Acts and then you've got the book of Romans. It's quite easy to find. Romans chapter 1, first seven verses. Here we go. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Even there, that's just a meaty intro. That's more than dear sir, isn't it? There's a lot he's packed into that. We're just going to peel that apart. Just have the final slide up, please, Paul. We're going to look at three aspects that he does here. He's declaring Jesus to be king. And he does it three ways. He declares Jesus to be the king as declared by history. He he proves that Jesus is the king as declared by the Spirit. And he points out that Jesus is the king as therefore declared by his people. By by history, by the Spirit and by his people. Just going to look at those briefly, each one of those in turn. So let's look at Jesus declared by history as king. He sets Jesus in history right from the start. In the first couple of verses... Uh, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That's the good news about the message of God. Which he promised, here we go, verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So it was foretold many, many hundreds of years before. You can see it all through the Old Testament. He was promised beforehand through his prophets. And then verse 3, concerning his son, Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, was foretold and he physically arrived. Foretold hundreds of years before, and he physically arrived. Jesus is a man of history. He's recorded outside the Bible by people who weren't fans. So you can't argue that, oh yeah, they're just bigging up something they made up. He's recorded outside the Bible by Tacitus and Josephus and the Jewish Talmud, people who did not like him. They talk about the things he did and who he was. He definitely existed and definitely did the things he did. And the Bible itself has been proven time and time again, to be more historically and archaeologically accurate than any other ancient book. Some of your friends will try and come up with some clever arguments about that proves it wrong. They're normally straw man arguments. If you struggle to answer them, send them my way for a coffee. We'll have a chat. The Bible is so authentically robust in history, more than any other book. Jesus existed. Jesus did the things he did. Anyone who tells you Jesus is a myth or a fairy tale they don't know what they're talking about. I'm serious. But also he proved himself to be God, not just in the things he said, not just in the miracles he performed, but also in fulfilling many prophecies that have been recorded hundreds of years before and he couldn't have orchestrated to fulfill, unless he's God. If someone had written some prophecies from a few hundred years ago, could you have made them happen in your life <laughs> to prove you're that person? It doesn't... It just, you can't, you can't decide where you're born, can you, for starters? What are the chances of anyone fulfilling just eight, eight prophecies like this? Eight prophecies written for us in the 13, 1400s. There were eight prophecies then. What are the chances of you fulfilling them? Pretty slim? If we find out how slim. You remember a few weeks ago, I got you to close your eyes and imagine billions of piles of five peas and you had to find one. Do you remember? 
about the chances of the universe existing. Do you remember that? Well, do so on a slightly smaller scale, but a bit more fun. Close your eyes. This is the chances of someone fulfilling eight prophecies from hundreds of years before. With your eyes shut, picture the entire United Kingdom. So it's England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. The entire United Kingdom, you're like this, covered in chocolate digestives. Yeah, nice. Told you you'd like it. Right, can you picture this pile of chocolate digestives covering the UK? Quite a lot. I'm getting hungry now. Now, make sure that pile is two feet deep. We're talking a lot of chocolate digestives. And while you're scattering this pile across the UK, you've licked the chocolate off one of them. And somewhere in that pile of two feet deep chocolate digestives across the UK, there is one with the chocolate licked off. And then you blindfold your friend and tell them to go wandering for a few days. Hopefully they don't fall off the cliffs. You have to fence them in. Let them go wandering for a few days through this massive great pile of chocolate digestives and tell them at any random moment and any random place to stop and pick one up. What are the chances of them picking up the one you've licked the chocolate off? Ridiculously slim. Almost negligible. That is the chance, you can open your eyes now, that is the chances of anyone fulfilling just eight prophecies. Now the trouble is Jesus didn't fulfill eight prophecies. He fulfilled over 300. 29 of them in one day. <laughs> this is Jesus, a man of history, who fulfilled prophecies that were foretold by God's prophets hundreds of years before. And the trouble is, people like the Jews who had read these prophecies, were expecting the Messiah, they had the wrong understanding of what they meant. The Jews weren't waiting for a Messiah that would die for the sins of the nation or of the world. They were waiting for a Messiah who would bring forgiveness of sins. The understanding of forgiveness of sins was a national issue and was going to be a national uh, correction, a national... Uh, what's the word? A moment when God will deal with the forgiveness of the nation's sins. That was what they were expecting. But they were expecting this Messiah who would ride on a big horse and trounce the Romans. They were awaiting a victorious military commander. That was their understanding. And I can't blame them. You look at Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 110. We've got them in the Old, Old Testament. You read those as prophecies of this future Messiah. And you look at them, and on the surface, they present as this, it's almost like a sword-wielding king defeating your, your physical oppressors. I get that. But they kind of miss the point. Because we also, for us, with the benefit of glorious technicolour hindsight, always helps, we get to see the likes of Isaiah 53, where we see this suffering servant who is rejected, who is despised, who is crushed, dying for us, for our sins, for our iniquities. That's the Messiah that Jesus proved to be. And the Jews missed it. Many today, have, and since, I see at the time, but also some since have come to faith more and more today, are coming to realise he's the one we've been waiting for. But so many have missed the point. They've been looking for the wrong kind of Messiah because of these prophecies. Jesus fulfills over 300 of them. And the New Testament writers help us see these prophecies in a new light about Jesus. They bring this, that very passage, Isaiah 53, to a, a new light when we see it speaking about Jesus a very different king who's expected with a much bigger agenda and a more powerful kind of revolution than they'd assumed. And that's Jesus, proved by history, declared by history. That's Jesus the king declared by history, but Jesus the king declared by the Spirit. Well, the resurrection declares Jesus' identity, doesn't it? In verse 4, Paul says he was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So the good news is 
not only that Jesus died in our place, this spotless one in place of the sinful ones, us, but he also rose again from the dead in victory over sin and death. Why? So that our brokenness might be made whole. So that our, our alienation with God might be healed forever. So we might be raised from death to life. Jesus didn't stay dead. See, at the time, no one, when he died, were declaring, it's all right, he died for our sins. <laughs> of course he didn't. No one, <laughs> you can imagine someone at the moment going, don't worry, it's all part of the plan. <laughs> no one did, did they? Of course they didn't. They were terrified. His friends, they hid. They were grieving for their dead friend, even though he told them what would happen. They were quivering wrecks, weren't they? But, when he did rise again, on just the third day, it's about 30, you count out the hours, it's like 34 hours later or something, it's not long. When he did rise again, suddenly everything made sense. And men and women realised the cosmic implications of what he'd just done. Something earth-shattering had happened on the cross and in that tomb, and a revolution was underway. From where I'm standing, Jesus' resurrection is incontestable. It's 2,000 years ago but it's incontestable. Then people come up with all sorts of arguments, and I know we talked about them here before, but about why he couldn't have, couldn't, couldn't have risen again. He can't have fainted and revived on the cross. The, the Romans were experts. They, perfect, they didn't invent it, crucifixion, but they were experts in perfecting the method of death. They were very, very good at it. They made sure someone died. There's no way he swooned, is the word that gets used. He fainted and revived. It's not He died. But he can't have been swapped for someone else on the cross. Because there were far too many people in close proximity that knew him, that wanted him dead, for them to have noticed. It wouldn't have happened. He can't have been, he can't have been someone else died in his place. When he rose again, he can't have been a ghost. He cooked and ate breakfast with his friends on a beach. He had dinner with two guys from the road to Emmaus. He ate with people. He can't have been a ghost. It can't even have been a hallucination for the same reason and also since shared hallucinations between two people are not impossible, let alone the 500, over 500 people that are declared to have been eyewitnesses and people at the time could go around and ask them. People met with a risen Jesus who definitely died once, definitely rose again. His resurrection happened and it sealed the deal. And upon his resurrection, he called his people to arms. He said, look at me. Now do you get it? This is who I am. I'm the anointed one. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you've been waiting for. Time to, time to be called to arms. He gave us a job to do, didn't he? He gave them a job and to proclaim the good news and to call upon others to join in. If they hadn't done that, we wouldn't be here today. We're here because of that legacy of declaring the good news and making disciples. If it wasn't for that, I'd be lost. So we've got a job to do to keep passing it on. We are a family a people on mission. And Jesus is the king declared by the Spirit as well as history. That's our Jesus. That's who we're following. That's who we're standing for. That's who we're declaring. See, it feels like a big onus to go and share the good news. Oh, I don't feel I'm up to that. Think about who Jesus is and just walk in the light of that, knowing he's got your back every step of the way. If he's planned all that, he can plan anything else. He knows exactly what he's doing. We're not doing the hard work. We're not doing the saving. All we're doing is just declaring the good news. Over the fence, across the desk, in a petrol station, over coffee, whatever it might be. In small ways and big ways. He does the hard work, he does the saving. All we need to do is declare him. 
And when you know he's declared by history, you know he's declared by the Spirit, it just gives you that, that strength to go, do you know what? Why am I worrying about what people think of me? Look who he is. I've just got to tell him. And the more we let that seep into our marrow, the more boldness we get just to get out there and get on with the job. Jesus is the king declared by the Spirit. Lastly, Jesus is the king declared by his people. How does Paul describe himself in verse 1? It's Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. This is who I'm living for. This is who I'm serving for. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Set apart for the good news. So the gospel is not merely good news about your hopes or your dreams or your plans. It's not about life being easy now you've got Jesus. Usually it goes the other way, doesn't it? It's harder because we're suddenly going against the current of the world, aren't we? But it's about a king who is gathering a people, gathering a family who he enlists to join him on that very same adventure with the most amazing future together ahead of us. It's guaranteed. If he's done all that, he can definitely do that. And Paul is saying he's been caught up in this astonishing plan and so are we. Because he goes on to say to the Romans in verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. He's telling him, you were called to this. You didn't just decide, you didn't tick a box when you, I don't know, checked in the hospital. Are you Buddhist, are you Hindu, are you Christian? It's not a tick box, this is, you. This is what you're called to. This is who you are now. So once you give your life to him, you then discover it was him calling you all along. Is that right? Time and time again. I gave my life to Jesus and then I realised he'd been wooing me. <laughs> there, 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 over here, there. It was all, oh, I can see his fingerprints now. It's, not, it's, no, it's normally not until you've become a Christian you go, oh right, it wasn't me, it was him. <laughs> it's brilliant, isn't it? And to be called as his people, calling to be called is such an amazing word, even in English. I still, still don't think we get quite the essence of what's going on here, but even in English, it's an amazing word. To call someone on the phone means to catch their attention. It gives them a focus. They're suddenly focused on you. They're talking to you. You're calling them. You're gaining their ear. That's what it means to call someone. But also to call someone by a name gives them an identity. Does that make sense? You call someone by a name, you're giving them who they are. That's calling someone. It's another essence. There's another facet of calling. When you, you know the phrase to call someone out, to bring out the lies, to bring out the truth. To call someone out is not letting things slide, it's bringing, bringing hidden intent to light. It exposes the truth and it releases freedom. Calling releases stuff. And to call someone to arms means to give them a purpose, give them a job to do. That's what God's calling does and more. To be called by God is all these and more. To be called by God catches us up, seizes our attention. To be called by God gives us identity. You're called by God. To be called by God shines light on who we are then and who we are now. And to be called by God gives us a job to do. That's what he's calling us into. See, he knew you before you were born, which I cannot get my head around. So it's like he knew me before I existed. How does that even work? But the Bible says it's true. Because he's God, of course he can. Do what he wants. If you know him, you then discover, Revelation tells you, your name was in the book of life before the earth was even created. So even before I existed, and even before the planet on which I now exist, 
happened, there's a book of life with my name in it. That's bonkers. But it's true. He knows you. If he knew you then, he definitely knows you now. <laughs> and if you, don't, if you don't know him yet, we were talking earlier about knowing God. If you don't know him yet yourself, know this, he knows your story. He knows where you've come from. He knows what you've been through. He knows what you struggle with. He knows what you delight in. He's numbered the hairs on your head. He knows your thoughts. And he gave of himself, Jesus gave of himself, so you might be wrapped up into something far bigger than you. Why are you not responding to that? I'm going to put that out there. If you haven't responded to that, why not? Life doesn't get easy when you become a Christian, but you're suddenly with someone who's got your back every step of the way, who made all this, who will never let you down, who will never leave you, never forsake you, never give up on you, never wag his finger and say, well, that was your last chance. Never. Never. You're his forever. And so Paul's saying to the people in Rome, you were called to this. Do you realize who you are? And he goes on. He goes deeper into who, what their identity is in verse 7. It says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God, loved, loved by God, and called to be saints. You are loved by a good father who has made his way through his son that you might be clean and pure. Sin's dealt with. And as a result, when you become his, you are no longer a sinner. Never call yourself that. You're now a saint. You're not a sinner anymore. You're a saint. Why? Because to be a saint means to be holy, to be consecrated, to be set apart. As a follower of Jesus, you are made holy by him. You're no longer a sinner, but a holy one who will likely make mistakes. See the difference? We still sin, but you're not a sinner. You're someone else now. You're a new creation. You're now a saint who will likely trip up time and time and time again. I know we're rubbish, aren't we? But he helps us grow in that. He helps us. You're a, you are now a saint. You're consecrated, which means to be set apart for God's purposes. Does your life look like that? Does your life look like that you are set apart for God's purposes? Don't feel guilty about it. Talk to him about it and step into it. He doesn't want you to beat yourself up about it. He just wants you to be sober. We are consecrated. We are saints. We are set apart for him. But the good news is, continues in verse 7, so you're called to be saints. And he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is undeserved favor. Grace is love that paid a price. That's what grace means. And that peace is ours. And it's from that place that we can then get involved. It's not out of a place of trying to muster up the strength to be better. That's the world's answer and it falls flat on its face every single time. Those self-help books in bookshops are getting bigger. There's a reason why they're getting bigger, because they're not working. You can't self-help yourself. We need help from outside. We need his help. And it's his grace and his peace that he gives us. That's where we get the strength to get involved, to stand firm, to persevere. With his favour and with his peace, we can then walk through life with purpose and not confusion. We can walk through life with hope and not uncertainty. This world's full of that right now, isn't it? We can walk through that with hope. Knowing that He's got our back and he knows exactly what he's doing and he's in charge, even when it doesn't look like it. 
And we can walk through life from a place of rest, not out of anxiety or drive. Do you live from a place of anxiety? Do you recognize that in yourself? Some people do. Or do you feel driven? What's, what's, what's driving you through life? Are you being driven by a sense of guilt, by what people have spoken over to you, by expectations, by pride, shame? Or are you being called by him? One pushes, one pulls. It's different. To be driven by something, even, even out of anxiety, it, it drives you forward or makes you run away. His calling pulls on us. He goes, come on, he beckons us. Look, I've done this for you. If I've done that, don't worry about the rest of it. You'll be fine. We step into his purposes. As we, his people, live for him, as we respond to his calling and we openly, consciously enjoy his goodness and his guidance, our lives will naturally, publicly declare him as king. It's about living a life that demand gospel questions. When you're naturally living a life based on what he's done and what he's doing, you won't help looking, like, looking different and people will start to ask questions. Opens the doors easier just by living a life for him. We don't have to muster anything up at all. And Jesus is the king declared by his people and you and I get, a, get to play a part in that. Amen? So just to finish, I just want to ask this question. Have you been caught up and the great revolution that's going on around you. Jesus did something 2,000 years ago that had cosmic implications and we get caught up in it. Are you living in the light of that? Are you doing that? Do you recognise Jesus as the one foretold by men of history, as the great promised rescuer who came to stand in our place in death? Do you recognise Jesus as the one who rose again from the dead? Because he did. And he did it in full completion of the promises that he would do just that. Promised he would and he did it. He did so conquering sin and death once and for all. And he rose again to call us to new life and to call us to arms. We've got a job to do. But it's not scary when we realise he's doing it all for us. He's racing ahead of us, clearing the path. Do you honour Jesus as your king? Are you living as a part of his people, declaring him to the world around us? To this world that is broken, this world that is lost, this world is adrift and it's the wrong way up. News broadcasts every day prove that. What's going on in our neighbourhoods proves that. What's going on in our families often proves that. This world is upside down. It desperately needs a revolutionary rescue. And that's our king. That's our Jesus. Do you want to stand? Can we... Sorry, band, can you, do you mind just coming back? I just want to, can we sing Majesty? I think that would be really helpful. Just declare Jesus for who he is. If that's all right. I'll, I won't play bass. If you just sing that song again. Thank you, Paul. Let's just lift the name of Jesus high for who he is and recognize what it is we're swept up into. It's nothing we have to muster up, nothing we have to try hard at other than resting in him. And it's in that place of rest we get to labor on an adventure that he's given us. Mm. Let's sing. Let's then sing. I'll pray. Thanks.